this morning. Every building, before it's a building, before it's built, it's committed to paper, rendered in blueprints. Some blueprints lead to buildings that are forgettable, and other buildings become something more, something like architectural art. Frank Lloyd Wright, the, American, the great American architect, had some thoughts about the difference between a mere building and architecture. He says, a building becomes architecture when the mind of a man consciously takes it and tries it with all his resources to make it beautiful, to put concordance, sympathy with nature, all that into it. Then you have architecture. First Timothy is a blueprint of the architectural model, marvel of the church of the living God. This is something that we don't have to beautify. It's already resplendent and amazing. First Timothy is going to show us how beautiful the church already is. First Timothy is going to show us that this church is the, the church, the church at large is the only institution that will endure past all time. Now the main purpose, the reason that First Timothy exists, the reason Paul wrote this book to First Timothy, he summarizes in First Timothy chapter three, verse fourteen and fifteen. So just turn, flip your Bible over to one page, and you'll see it there at the at verse fourteen and fifteen. He says, "I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things, meaning the whole book of First Timothy, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave." In the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So 1 Timothy is a blueprint for us here at Center Church, and it is a blueprint for every faithful church on the planet. In these places, or in these pages, we find the plans for what a church is to be, what it's to do, and what it's to be preoccupied with. And we find that this design is a design given to us from God. We're called as a church, as 1 Timothy tells us, to be a pillar and buttress of the truth, meaning that we are to hold up the truth of the gospel and we are to present the truth of the gospel on a regular basis. That ought to be and must be our primary expression. This is what we're about. We are called to be a pillar where we hold up the gospel and buttress up the gospel so that other people might be able to see the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe, and so that we, in seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ again, might continue to believe those of us who are already saved. Now, that doesn't mean that throughout this book we'll only talk about, you know, John 3.16, for God to love the world, or that he gave his only begotten son. No, what we're going to see throughout here is a blueprint of how a church should look. And just through the first three chapters, Paul's going to tell us how to spot false teachers and false teaching. He's going to help us understand how to read the Old Testament. He's going to help us understand that our call is to live a prayerful and quiet life. He's going to tell us who should lead in the church and what qualifications are for leadership, and that's just through chapter 3. I guarantee you will be offended, but you will be offended because I'm offended when I read parts of it because of the scriptures and hopefully not because of me. But we have this blueprint. And so what we're going to see today is that God is the one who builds his church. God is the one who constructs his church. God is the one who works in his church. 
God is the one who has initiated, initiated work in his church, and we as a people merely cooperate. The blueprint, the author of the blueprint is God, and we're going to see that in verses 1 and 2. So if you have a Bible, join with me, look and follow along as I read from the English Standard Version. I'm just going to read the first two verses from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would Fill your people here with your presence. Holy Spirit, we know that you are the author of the Word of God. And we, those of us who are regenerated, we are your people. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to lean forward and listen. Listen not just for information. Listen not just to to gain facts. But, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who listen so that we might be inspired and changed. This can only happen by your work, Lord. Not by my eloquence, not by my learning, not by anything I can say, but by you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning, and I pray you would be with us in power. And so, Lord, speak as your word is preached. In your name we pray. Amen. God builds. God builds. We merely cooperate. Two ways God builds. First, God initiates. God initiates. How does God initiate? The primary builder, let's make no mistake, we can see this in verse 1, the primary builder of his church is God Most High. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who labor, labor in vain, as Solomon said. And before, and before we understand anything about what we are to do and what we are to be, we need to understand that we as a church and every faithful church belongs to the Lord. We are meant to be the church of the living God, not the church that talks about the living God. We belong to the living God. So how does God build his church? Verse 1 gives us two things. I'll highlight one here first. Salvation. Look at, look at what he says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior. So how does God build his church? By saving a sinful people. God is our Savior. That means that He moves to save His people for Himself and gather them to Himself. This gathering is meant to take place in local churches across the globe. The Lord has initiated this work here with us and in every faithful church on the planet. Now you might think it's strange for Paul to call God Savior. Usually, we refer to Jesus as Savior and God as Father. Yet, in this brief letter, Paul calls God Savior no less than three times. Why? Well, because God the Father is the author of salvation, and it's entirely appropriate to call Him Savior. He is the author of the salvation of the human race. 
So we have this mindset sometimes in our culture that God is the angry, wrathful one, and Jesus is the meek and mild and gentle one that comes and, and, and says, I will, I will stand in the place, I will, I will absorb the wrath that you have for these people because of your anger. That's not the way it is. God is the one who loved the world and sent his son to save the world. God the Father can be called Savior. We could say that God is the one who acted in history to save mankind by sending Jesus as a man to live and die and rise again. The united triune God acts in perfect accord to save humanity. That's why God can be referred to by Paul as our Savior. This is also the consistent testimony of the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms and Isaiah. Here's an example from Isaiah chapter 43. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Do you see what he's saying? I am Savior. God is Savior of his people. When he grabs somebody for himself, there is no one to deliver that person from his hand. So God loved this broken, sinful world and sent his perfect, holy son. And so to build a right, we need to understand that God is our Savior, that God has worked in our lives, individually and corporately, to save us. We are not a people who can save ourselves. Your small group leader is important, but he is not your Savior. Your husband or wife is important, but they are not your Savior. Your boss is important, but he or she is not your Savior. Your pastors are important, but none of us can be called your Savior. This is reserved for God. God is the one who began to build His church by becoming the God that saves. The God that saves. He didn't become this God who saves. He is the God who saves. And what does He do when He gathers this people together? He brings them into local churches. This is why, and, 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 he, and he builds something that lasts. This is why he says to Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter. This is Jesus speaking. On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, the gates of hell, that's a euphemism for death. So Jesus is saying, I am gathering a people for my Father who will be impervious to death. And they will be in what's called a church. Now God promises that the church will prevail because of his power and his strength. And that the gates of hell or death will not prevail over and against us. That promise only stands for church, for Christians, for people who are gathered together. All world governments will fall. All universities will be toppled. Wall Street will go away. Every Fortune 500 corporation will be gone at some point in the future. But the church, the church of the living God, 
the church of the living God will endure. We don't have to wonder if Jesus and his purposes will prevail. They will. His church will endure. Now, we want to be faithful as a church, as a particular local church. Because when we're not faithful, or if we're not faithful, it's entirely possible that the Lord could come and snatch our lampstand away and make us not a church. But his church will prevail. His church does prevail. The gates of hell cannot prevail against his people. Why? Because God is our Savior. And he is our primary builder. He builds, we merely cooperate. First step, salvation. The second step, we find that he's initiated in another way as well. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Christ Jesus our hope. Now, hope here has a different meaning than we typically use it for. Usually, hope is a synonym for wishful and unrealistic thinking. For example, are you going to pass the test? I hope so. Or, are you going to be on time? I hope so. Are you going to homecoming? I hope so. Are you going to get the promotion? I hope so. I hope so means probably not, but if it were up to me, I would, right? That's how we use hope. But hope here in verse 1 is something totally different. Christ Jesus is referred to as our hope. Now notice, Paul is not telling us that we should hope in Jesus Christ, though we should, or that he's the author of hope, though he is, but Jesus Christ is the very substance of our hope. Jesus is the reason we can hope. In other words, the embodiment of our hope is Jesus Christ. The hope we have has a face, and it's Jesus' face. Jesus is that one bright beacon of hope that we have here at Center Church. This is why we openly proclaim that we fix ourselves upon Jesus Christ. Why? Because it would be irresponsible. For anyone to stand up here and ask you to put your hope on anything else. It would be irresponsible for anybody to preach. You can have the marriage of your dreams. You can have the finances of your dreams. You can have the kids of your dreams. You can have everything you want if you just do X, Y, and Z. That's irresponsible. And those are things that we must not, we cannot hope in. We must only hope in Christ Jesus. That's why we want to fix ourselves on Christ. Because apart from His coming, his living, his dying, his rising, his ascending, his interceding, and his pending return, we would have no hope. And we would have no reason to gather. But we do. Why? Because Jesus lives. Listen, your hope, if you're a Christian, your hope is alive as long as Jesus is alive. Your hope is alive as long as Jesus is alive. Now let's ask the other question. Can Jesus die again? The answer to that is a resounding no. And if you want to be emphatic, no way. He rose again and lives an invincible life. 
See, he cannot die again. So what does that mean about our hope? When our hope is placed in him, our hope cannot perish. It cannot be extinguished. Because Jesus will not, cannot die. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Wall Street isn't. The government isn't. Your job isn't. Jesus is. In other words, we must consider Jesus that rock upon which we build our lives, all of us, corporately together, but each individually as well. For our church to be built according to plan, we must root and rivet ourselves upon Jesus Christ. This is more than just making Jesus a part of our lives. This is more than just inviting Jesus into our lives. This is more than just tipping our hats to Jesus. This is recognizing that Christ is our very life. And the reason we gather as a church week to week is to remind ourselves of who we have in Christ. Being in Christ means we have a sure and certain hope. You have nothing outside of Jesus. Your life is hidden with Him. Your life is His. You are His. On Christ the solid rock we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. So, a blueprint of any faithful church, and Lord willing, the blueprint of our church, is first that God is the one who rescues. He's the one who seeks out stumbling sinners. He's the one who brings the dead to life by the power of his gospel. And he's the one who gives us hope. He's the one who is the primary builder. See, by... We, he's not asking us by the dent of our own ability to make a difference in the world and sort of improve ourselves to be a light to our community. Rather, he initiates the work in all of us. God is a Savior who reaches out to sinners through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and gives us a real concrete hope to hold on to. This truth is the truth that we broadcast weekly. This truth is the truth that we want to build our church upon. If there is no Savior, there is no hope. And if there is no hope, there is no point. But God saves, and Christ is our hope. And that, that is where we build our lives. And that, upon that rock, is how we build our church. Hope in anything else, and you will be disappointed. Crushed, really. God builds. We merely cooperate. He initiates by rescuing through salvation and by securing our future and giving us a hope. God builds. We merely cooperate. Not only does God build by initiating the building of his church, he also supplies the tools necessary for the ongoing work. We see this in verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Here are the tools that sustain. Here are the tools that we use when it comes to building this church and what every faithful church ought to use. It's this grace, mercy, peace. Grace, mercy, peace. The shorthand for, here, here's, here's how we build. We talk about the grace of God, the mercy 
from God and the peace with God. That's how we build. The grace of God, the mercy from God, and the peace with God. I hope you're sensing a theme here. God is the one who initiates. God is the one who begins the process of building, and God is also the one that supplies what we need to continue the building. He is the one who builds via grace, mercy, and peace as his people take in their hands the tools of grace, mercy, and peace so that they might become a pillar and buttress of truth of the gospel. So how does God build? He initiates. He also gives us grace, mercy, and peace. What is grace? Grace is not a mist or a substance or like a a vapor that you sort of blow out on, on everybody so that they can just feel a little bit better about ourselves. One author said this, I used to think grace was a spiritual substance that God stored behind his heavenly throne and that he dispenses to people below. Or like, you know, he, he, I used to think something like, well, he has grace in his pockets and he's just sort of passing it out every now and again. That's not grace. Grace is the help we receive from Christ himself. The old definition of grace is good. God's unmerited favor, but it doesn't go far enough. God, grace is definitely a gift from God, but the gift is Christ himself. So grace is that reality. It's a one-word description of how God gives himself to us in Christ. So by grace, Christ has saved us. By grace, We are transformed. By grace, we are preserved. By grace, we are glorified one day. By grace, we obey. By grace, we continually trust. These are the ways in which the Lord gives us the ability to believe and to be transformed and to to preserve and to be glorified and to obey and to continually trust. These things come by grace, meaning it comes directly from Christ for us to build with as a church. He also gives mercy. What's that? Mercy is it's associated with pity and sympathy. We don't like the word pity or sympathy because it seems like there's a loss associated with those words. But one of, the, one of the ways I like to describe mercy is kindness. God is kind. He is gentle. He is perpetually gentle and he's perpetually kind. He is never overbearing and he is never harsh. He is merciful, which means he steadfastly refuses to give us what we deserve. He is kind. He is gentle. You know what it's like to interact with someone who's genuinely kind? It's just refreshing. It's refreshing, and it, and it, it builds you up, right? Have you, when you interact with someone who's caustic and opinionated and has every, opinions about everything in the world and, and wants to make sure everybody understands and agrees, it just is kind of overwhelming. God's not like that. God is kind, and he's gentle. And when it comes to his mercy, there's always more. Always. His mercy is new every day. There is never a time, Christian, 
that you can ever go to him and experience any kind of unkindness. He's kind. I read this week in Thomas Watson, who's a, a Puritan from a bygone age. I'm paraphrasing. He says, God is a God of both justice and mercy. Justice is in his left hand. Mercy is in his right hand. And God is right-handed. Meaning, God ministers with his mercy more than he does with his judgment. So if you're right-handed, think about it like this. If you're right-handed like I am, when I go to eat, I grab the fork with my right hand. When I go to open a door, I turn the doorknob with my right hand. When I go to put my keys in the ignition, I have to do it with the right hand. Never mind, that's a bad example. But when I go to throw a ball, I use my right hand. When I grab a pencil and write, I use my right hand. In my life, I use my right hand for all kinds of tasks because my right hand is dominant. God's right hand, according to, to, to Watson, is dominant because he ministers mercy. He ministers gentleness. He ministers kindness to his people again and again and again. This is why we can rest assured that he's never going to turn us away. Do we fail? Yes. Do we fall? Yes. Do we sin? Absolutely. Are we all that we should be? No. But God is kind, and he never sends us away. He always, always welcomes us. And more than that, when we wander away, when we lose our way, God is the one who seeks us out and by his kindness brings us back. God builds. We merely cooperate. How does he build? He builds with grace. He builds with mercy. He builds with peace. This is not just the cessation of hostilities, but when we have peace with God, we are at rest with God. If you're a Christian, there is nothing more for you to do to prove yourself to God. Nothing. Why? Because Christ has stood, Christ has taken your place. He's sta- he's, he, is, he has come to you and become a substitute for you. Peace. Peace is what we have with God. Because Christ experienced the wrath of God. As Christians, we already have peace with God. We don't have to keep the peace. He's the one who keeps the peace. You know what it's like to be around somebody who is kind of unstable when it comes to their anger? Or yell, they'll at the drop of a hat just get mad and you don't know why kind of random, and you have to walk around on tiptoes to avoid landmines that might blow up and blow out any peace. And so you have to work exquisitely hard to be a social lubricant just to keep the peace, going around explaining, oh, no, no, they didn't mean this, they meant this. And you have to work so hard just so that people don't get angry. That's not the kind of peace that we're talking about. That's a fake peace. There's a real peace with Jesus. 
a real peace that we have. We are in Christ now. We have been crucified with Christ. Our life is hidden with him. Christian, you are at peace with God. What do you have to prove? Nothing. You've already proven yourself to be a sinner, and Christ has died and rose again. What do you have to strive for? Before the face of God? Nothing. Christ has stood in the gap and taken our place so that we might have peace with the eternal God. See how God builds? God calls us to build with grace, with mercy, and with peace. So that's why what we do as we minister one to another is we want to be people who administer, who remind each other of the grace that we have, the help that we have in Jesus Christ. This is why we sing about that. That's why we preach messages from the Bible. We don't just take topics. We preach messages from the Bible because in the Bible what we see is a God who helps and gives grace to a people who don't deserve it. And because God is merciful, we minister mercy to each other. We can be merciful to each other. We can overlook flaws. We can overlook faults. We can overlook a great many things because what has God done for us? He has forgiven us our every sin so that we might have peace with God. And we who have peace with God, we can be at peace with anybody on the planet because we're at peace with God. Especially in the church. These are our tools. This is how we build. This is the way God builds. This is how we cooperate. By, ministry, by taking those tools, those resources, grace, mercy, peace, grace from God, mercy from God, peace of God, and minister to them one to another. Now, I know this is not what the news outlets are talking about. I know none of these things are trending on Twitter. But, The Word of God tells us what we're called to be as a church. We look at the Scriptures to ask, what are our priorities? The world will always try to foist topics upon us. But the only essential thing, the only essential thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We build upon and with the gospel. And it has to be that way. It has to be that way. It has to be that way. Think about this. Our task is to tell dead sinners about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you have words alone? Do you have the words strong enough or powerful enough to be able to raise the dead? No, you don't. What do you have, though? You have the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God for salvation, which is the means by which God rescues his people from their sins and gives them a hope and reminds them that it's all by grace with never-ending mercy and eternal peace. That is our message. That is what we're called to do. This is what we're called to be. We're called to be a people who constantly point ourselves away from ourselves, 
away from the shrill voices in the culture and upon our God, who is our Savior. And our Jesus, who is our hope, who delivers grace, mercy, and peace. And this is what we need. This is what we need. We need, a, we need a hope. We need hope when we're mourning the loss of a spouse or a child. <coughs> we need hope. We, 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 need, we need words. We need grace to, to, so that we might be convicted safely. These are the things that we have to have as the tools of our trade. Grace, mercy, peace. Our God, in His kindness, grants us access to Him as our rescuer. He has reached down and grabbed weary sinners and put them on the road to the celestial city, powered by grace and mercy that is never-ending and a peace that is ours that can never be lost. I hope none of us fall into the trap of thinking that if all the people in here are just normal people, mundane, average, ordinary people, or that what we're doing here is kind of important. No, it's essential. And everybody who has trusted Jesus in this room is anything but average, anything but mundane. Any who have trusted Jesus, you are a miracle. Why? Because God is your Savior who reached down and saved you. You have a hope now. You have a hope that's found in Jesus Christ that can never be taken away. You have access to grace unending. The Lord will promise to be with you and help you. You have access to mercy. So no matter how often you fail, the Lord will pick you up. And you have peace both now and forever. This is the blueprint. This is the architecture. This is our call. This is our commission from the risen Lord. This is what we're trying to build. To continue to be a place that is both a pillar and buttress of the truth. To continue to be a place that the Lord builds and we, through our efforts, merely cooperate. That cooperation will continue and start again next week. But now let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would help us all, Lord. We, we need your help, Lord. I'm grateful when I look in the pages of Scripture and recognize that though, because I, I can think, man, I've got a whole lot to do. I've got all kinds of things that I need to get done. But I look in the pages of Scripture and I find all that you have already done for us, Lord. We ought to be a grateful people. We ought to be a people who are amazed at what we have in you. And so, Lord, I pray that that would be who we are as a church, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who revel in our Savior. I pray that we would be a people who build upon our hope. I pray that we would be a people that minister grace and mercy and peace 
one to another. I pray that we would be a people who proclaim on a regular basis the gospel of Jesus Christ and broadcast that publicly and far and wide. I pray that we would lift up high the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that that would be our message and our hope so that those of us who are tempted to want to just fall away or stop or quit following you would stay on the path. And for other people in our community, in our jobs, at work, at school, in our families, that we might preach the gospel, tell them about this hope, tell them about the fact that there is a God who has created all things, and though all things in creation is turned against Him, He is not angry. He rescues, He saves, and any can come. Lord, may that message impact our community. And may we, as a church, faithfully broadcast that truth internally, externally, everywhere we go. This church is yours, Lord. All faithful churches are yours. And may we, may we conduct ourselves aright in this household. Your church, the church of the living God. Bless us as we go through this series so that we might be a people more amazed at all that you've done for us, more committed to serving you and your purposes in our time and place. In your name we pray. Amen.